Welcome back to the Upgroup Meet the Masters podcast series. I'm Adrian Blair, and over the course of the series, I'll be speaking with the winners of the recent Upgroup Digital Masters Awards. Our guest today is Shimona Mehta, Managing Director of Vimeo for Shopify, who won the award for excellence in commercial management. Over the last five years, across multiple roles, Shimona has played a major part in Shopify's emergence as a genuine alternative to Amazon for small businesses selling online around the world. Even after the recent market turmoil, Shopify is still valued at over $40 billion. Shimona, congratulations on winning the award and welcome to the show. Thanks, Adrian. I appreciate that. Nice to see you again. So let's get right into it and think about um, what you've been doing and how you've been so successful at Shopify over the last few years. Perhaps you can start just by telling us a bit about the scope of your role and the scale of the team that you're now responsible for internationally. Yeah, I'm happy to. Uh, So I'm currently the Managing Director for Europe, Middle East and Africa here at Shopify. Uh, And I've been in the role for a couple of years now. In fact, as you can tell by my accent, I'm not British. I'm actually from Toronto, born and raised. And so I started my career with Shopify on the Canadian side. And a few years ago, as I was working particularly with the Shopify Plus part of our organization, which is our product and our plan that really exists to serve, you know, emerging fast growth, high growth, and enterprise clients, I'd agreed to come over and build Europe for Plus specifically. So I made my way over here literally right before the pandemic. And after a few months, actually moved into the managing director role. So I've got ownership of all of our commercial organization here in EMEA. And uh, so I've got all merchant-facing teams all support that role right into me. And I've got ownership, of course, of what our strategy is at Shopify, how we, what we would call aiming uh, into our experience expansion and our growth into these markets. So working really closely with our product organization, which of course is housed in North America. Got it. And I guess part of this involves teaching a North American organization how to go global, how to be successful across some very, very different geographies in Europe. How have you managed to do that? I knew as I came over here that we needed to really go through a cultural transition. And I actually think this is true of most organizations that are going through some kind of international expansion. What I generally find happens is an organization's taking what they've known, what they've been successful with, even though learnings from the past, and they're trying to copy and paste it into new markets before they've you know learned the nuances of, of each individual market. And so there was a cultural transition really to take place. And I, I actually find that I'm spending probably close to 30% of my time looking inwards at Shopify. Um, And so much of that is educating the market on things like, you know, EMEA is not one market, right? We're 116. Uh, And explaining, you know, with with deep storytelling and emotion, like down to our customer and our market level. How is France commerce different from Germany? You know, how do, how do we think about go to market in Italy at a community by community or a North and South basis versus, you know, how we might look at it more holistically in, in another market that in, you know, in Germany, when you think of, you know, sales and go to market, Outreach isn't, you know, through email chains. You and I talk a lot about sales. It's not through email chains. You pick up the phone and you cold call. Um, and so there's, it's really explaining some of the nuances of how commerce works and how our go-to-market really needs to work here so that we can actually, rather than copy and paste, they're actually thinking about how do we actually take what we know, um, but actually adjust it and localize it for each market. And has that been quite a cultural shift for a, for a Canadian company to be able to do that? How, how has the culture had to evolve? 
Yeah. The, you know, the good news is I think the awareness that there was learning to be done was already there. So that that in and itself actually is already a win, is that we need to learn about these markets in order to be successful so that we build the right products, we build the right offering and the right proposition for them. But that gap in knowing that you don't know something, but getting to the point where you really deeply understand it when you're working with folks in Canada who've not, you know, been to Germany before, been to France before. It takes some time. And I actually find it takes really getting specific stories and talking about them, you know, explaining to people that when you go to Berlin, you know, you're not going to be able to just tap your credit card everywhere. You better have cash with you. You better ask the cab driver when you get into the cab, if they take card, when you go to a restaurant, you better ask them up front if they take cash or card. And that's something that, you know, those it's those nuances of the every days of either go to market or commerce that people actually take for granted when, when you live in a, a market and you experience and build in a market, you know, fully. Uh, and so that's been, I think probably the most fun is, picking up those stories of like the day to day and and telling them and and having to do it over and over and over again. Mm. What I've always found challenging in, the, in those situations is you've always got very local product specific requirements, you know, for Germany or the Netherlands or whatever it might be. You've also got, you know, big kind of global features or or new products that the team want to work on generally the economics of doing something for your biggest market always wins you know it, it always the business case is always better to make things better in a huge market than to release some new thing in the in the netherlands but if you want to succeed in the netherlands you've got to do that eventually so how, how do you make those kinds of decisions at, at shopify you know our aim as we are endeavoring to remove barriers from people being able to start, build and grow, um, grow businesses has absolutely been, you know, where can we actually get, where can we impact the most, you know, future entrepreneurs? And up until now, really, the answer really would have been, let's optimize for the US and then everything else we can continue to build on top of. But we've done a phenomenal job already of growing in the US the last, you know, 13, 14 years, 15 years. Um, and so we've, uh, I think we've gotten great at recognizing that the growth that we're going to have, particularly if we're going to achieve our mission of making commerce better for everyone and providing that democratization of commerce and entrepreneurship was going to have to come market by market. So I've gone through... Um, kind of a prioritization for us as I've set some aims for us. And so we're focused on a few markets to start because you're absolutely right, Adrian, you can't build for all the markets at the same time that they're just peanut butter spreading. And so what I've done actually has gone through and we've analyzed and we've picked five markets that we're focusing on for the moment so that we can focus all of our energy investment and resources into those five for now, right? So from a product perspective, a go-to-market, even our legal and talent and infrastructure teams, um, our support organization, our ecosystem, all focused in together into a few. Let's get them right. Let's understand how to do it well. We'll probably develop a bit of a playbook of what it means to actually develop the right offering by market. And it'll get easier for us. Um, and that way also, we're not trying to build across, you know, a, a million features across a million markets. And is that five just a question of what are the biggest five? Or is it more complicated than that? You know what? It it roughly ends up working out to probably close to the biggest. I've you know kind of focused us on Western Europe, but I actually switched it up a little bit. So we've got some of the biggest ones like the UK and Germany and France, but I also took a look at Italy and Spain. And one of the reasons for that is they're so far behind on digitization um, that there's so much learning opportunity for us there, Adrian. Right? They're they're like 
in the U.S., we're already ahead and we're talking to, you know, we're talking to entrepreneurs and businesses about, you know, blockchain and NFTs and gated commerce and all of these things. In Italy, you know, the conversations we're having is like, why should you digitize your business? Right. So that's a really different muscle for us to make sure that we're building and flexing and thinking about our go to market and our offering and our product. Um, and so I, I wanted something that would stretch us as well as an organization. So to remind us that not everyone is where the US is by ways of, you know, commerce sophistication. And then you've got your like, you've got your top five and it's great that you're, you're so clear. But within that, you've also got a decision about, you know, how do you allocate across those top five? What I've always found in the past is, you know, you have local GMs who are all extremely convincing and vocal, as you'd expect them to be, champions of their own markets. But, you know, you're there to make figure these things out and make these decisions, often very tough decisions about allocation. How, how do you figure that out between your priority markets? So you're absolutely right. The country leaders have been incredibly important into feeding into the organization what is the landscape, right? What are the verticals we should be focusing on? What does commerce look like? What does it take to build trust? Um, you know, who are the competitive players? What are the most important product pieces for those markets? And so really getting a good landscape map was actually where we started. Um, and then it takes on, honestly, a lot of collaboration, right? Because we're going to, we need to work across. Are we starting with small entrepreneurs in a market? Are we focusing on a barbell strategy? Are we, are we headed up market and enterprise in order to win trust? And, how is Shopify resonating in those markets today, right? What does our market share look like? What is, you know, what does our uh, unaided search and awareness look like? And so really understanding first where we were at in each of these markets actually helped with like where, what's our starting point? So in the UK, we've been building phenomenally for the last few years. And I'm, and I'm really focused on ensuring that we continue not only to kind of improve our sophistication and our thought leadership here, but ensure that we're really moving up market and helping some of our larger businesses who are having a challenge with like moving their commerce and their their tech stack into the next, into, you know, into the next decade, really helping them. Whereas in Italy, a lot of our focus is going to be on a lot of the smaller merchants because 90 plus percent of businesses in Italy are three employees or less. Right. So that's a very different landscape. And that's something I wouldn't have learned if I didn't have a country leader there to teach me that. Um, but those are the types of things that then feed into, you know, what is actually the play that we need there. And so what I really need in Italy is we need a kind of a ground game strategy. How do we enable an ecosystem of really wonderful partners who are helping us go community to community? How are we working with some of the largest trade boards there that are thinking about entrepreneurship? How are we working with, you know, policymakers to think about how we enable small businesses to digitize their businesses? So a little bit different play. Um, but it really started with like ensuring that we had a really good idea of the landscape of each market. One thing, a few weeks ago, I was talking to um, Pierre um, Dimitri Gorkotius Uber, who did, you know, the whole kind of initial growth across Europe for, for Uber and the rides business. He was talking about having playbooks for how you grow the business and how they, at Uber, they shared those playbooks across all the different GMs. Do you have a sort of similar concept at, at Shopify of, you know, the, the Shopify way of doing things? I always err from saying the Shopify way of doing things. Right? We really try to think through growth mindset and thinking infinite game. What is the right solution for the present day versus, you know, just duplicating a playbook over and over because we can fall into the trap of just doing what's always been done, not using second order thinking. And so uh, rather than a playbook of exactly the Shopify way of doing things, we kind of have a set of heuristics and values that we make decisions by. Um, but what I have done is 
we've kind of mapped our markets in a few stages instead. So we can start to think about what are the areas that we might think about investing in uh, or how hard we're going to go in certain markets at different stages. So I think kind of about seeding markets that are very new for us, you know, where we're just trying to build and attract an ecosystem that wants to build on top of our platforms. We start to attract a merchant base um, and we start to expand our, our, uh, our product market fit that we start to learn about the market. And then there's kind of the invest stage where we've learned about the market. We have an understanding of where we think we want to grow. And then we start to further invest into that very expensive go-to-market muscle, right? Like starting to turn that around, you need to have some learnings. You need to have a bit of a landscape. You need to have a kind of a foot in the door, your first few hero merchants uh, or customers in the door before you really start to invest. And then when you really have an idea of how you're going to grow, then I, I think about scale. So that's where you're really kind of turning on that 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 sales, that B2B, that go-to-market engine. Um, and at each of them, I, I've thought that through, you know, kind of the lens of like marketing. Where's our where's our brand presence look like? What does it look and sound like? What is our go-to-market presence? What does our ecosystem look like? And what does our product market fit look like? Because even with our product organizations, we have to actually think through kind of the stages of, of how we build and expand a product for each market. And just think about the scale of your team now. You've got what, getting on for 800 people across EMEA. What are the kind of basic processes you have week by week to just keep this show on the road and keep everybody focused on on the right things? Actually, I'd say this is one of the hardest parts of my job and probably one of my biggest areas of stretch and learning over the last few years. Um in how fast we've grown. You know, when you're, you know, just a couple of years, I think my organization was maybe 40 people. It's very easy to have a very personal relationship with every single person on your team, stay very close to the front line, really understand what the pulse of your, what, of your team is, but also the pulse of the customer, um, ensure that everyone has a really close engagement to decision-making, you know, um, and uh, the priorities and for them to have all the context that they need and access to you. Um, when you're several hundred people, that becomes difficult, right? I have no, most of them don't have a relationship with me and, and same with them. And so really thinking through um, how we network and, and create kind of communication cadences has been one of the most vital. Um, so focused on two things. One is the craft of leadership has been vital because it's actually the leaders who create the leverage to empower our people to do the best work and serve our merchants. Um, and so the craft of leadership has become actually vital. And I know this tends to be something that becomes a nice to have in a lot of organizations is in developing and empowering leaders. But to me, it's actually the most important, um, you know, thinking through how they design and build and hire orgs and ensure we have great talent on board, how we're performance managing, how we create clarity for people, how we storytell to ensure that they have clarity of mission, like all of these things become vital. And so I've, I've focused a lot on the leadership layer because uh, they're the ones that empower our frontline. Uh, and the other is um, a very regular cadence of frontline communication. So lots out, you know, weekly and quarterly cadence of, of QBRs, as I call it, where we include the entire organization on what's happening, what our results have been, what we're going to be focused on next. But I actually also, because I don't have, um, you know, one-to-one -one access with my teams anymore, every single week, I actually have a frontline meeting, myself and frontline sales or myself and our frontline merchant success folks every week so that they feel like they have a connection and relationship with me and the same with them. And it's actually their space to ask me any question they want, whether they want to get to know me, they want to understand where we're headed. That's our time together with none of their leaders in there. So I spent a lot of time making sure I've found a way to be scalable frontline and to make sure that we're communicating and we're building leaders.
It's so interesting you use the word craft, the craft of leadership. Tell me a bit more about that. Why do you think of it as a, as a craft and what does that word mean for you? When I first got into leadership, no one was teaching me the skills of leadership or management or whatever anyone wants to call it. And what I what I found uh, before as well, I don't know if you've ever seen this, where the, you just take the highest performer in an organization and make them the leader of that org. But them being you know, the best salesperson doesn't necessarily make them a great leader of humans. And it truly is. And I'm, I'm adamant with this. And as I, I talk to my organization about this, when you move, let's say, from an, uh, an individual contributor sales role into leadership, you have changed careers. You've changed craft. What made you great at sales actually doesn't necessarily make you great at leadership at all. You had to be really great individual contributor. Now you have to think about leverage. Um, that there are skills and expertise that you'll bring to your craft that could be useful. But all of the skill sets and um, and competencies that you need to be a great leader are actually quite different than what you had before. And I use the word craft very intentionally so people really think through, is this a career change I want to make, right? Or is this a skill set I want to develop? Is this you know how I'm going to get fulfillment in my career? Is this where my career is headed? And so the, the word craft actually, I think, is vital because the I always say there's kind of five or six pillars of leadership. It's you're building, um, you know, you're building great teams, which includes hiring and design. You set and hold high standards, you know, which is for individuals and teams. You create clarity. You create psychological safety. You're a great storyteller. You build strong relationships. But foremost, you're no longer the person who's doing the work. You're the leverage point, you know, to enable people to do it. Um, and so, yeah, I'm very intentional about the word craft. Yeah, when you package it up like that, you know, you can find people who are naturally great at one or two of those things. But to turn yourself into someone who can actually do all of those things well is very, very hard because nobody does all of those things naturally. No, not at all. And I think that's the other misnomer that we have is that there's just natural leaders that you either have it or you don't. I disagree with that. You can develop it and you develop it over a career. If you're committed to it, just like you were maybe in sales or anything else you were doing, you can become a great leader over time. How do you think about this question of autonomy? Because as a leader, you want to give a degree of autonomy to frontline teams and you know let them create and figure out better ways of doing things. At the same time, you want to have a level of consistency to the way things work. Otherwise, you know, you have chaos. How do you think about that trade-off? Providing a level of autonomy to teams, to me, is vital for fast growth, right? Because at some point you get so large that if you continue to be the bottleneck for all decision-making, you've actually slowed down and you've impeded the growth of an organization. So when we see companies you know, going through hockey stick growth, one of the most important things, and this is actually why I say leadership is so important, one of the most important things to do is to figure out how you're actually going to sustain that growth by enabling people to be decision-makers um, because bottlenecks just slow everything down. And so um, one of my favorite books, actually, and, and one of my favorite philosophies around leadership um, is by David Marquette, who, who wrote a book called Turn the Ship Around. And the, the concept of the philosophy is leadership by intent. Um, and if anyone's not read this, who's listening here, I highly recommend it. So David actually was the captain of a submarine in the U.S. Navy. Uh, and so you'd think that in the armed forces, you've truly got like directive Actually, he created an environment where people could have the autonomy to make decisions. But it is about ensuring, and this is where some of those pillars of leadership come in, you have to have created clarity on how to make decisions, right? 
what are the heuristics by which, what are the values by which, what are the important objectives by which people should be making decisions. You have to have built in them the competence to make the decisions. So are you developing your people? And I also think you have to have built in them the confidence to make decisions, right? And so that means you've made it safe for them to fail. You've made it safe for them to make mistakes and you've created that space that you have confidence in them to make the decision. Um, and so if you've done those three things, that's our job as leaders to make sure that they have clarity in how to make the decision. And then, of course, there's a few decisions that have to come to me, right? So the, the part of the clarity is here are all of the decisions that I want you to just go ahead and make. Then here are all of the decisions that you should make. And then just let me know that you made them because I might be able to coach you on them. And then there's probably only one or two where you need to come ask me about the decision before you make it. But nine times out of 10, if you've got good communication in the decision-making, you've got good clarity of how to make the decision, you've built the competence in people, then you should be able to trust them to make the decision. I think you guys have gone 100% remote, right, since um, since COVID, and that's here to stay. We all know the pros and cons of remote by now pretty well and hybrid and all the rest. How are you making that work with all the challenges of remote work? This change of going remote or the change of the pandemic actually was a muscle that we just then just needed to flex because we we're actually a fairly resilient organization as it is. Um, and we're a fairly distributed organization already. And so I spent some time, Adrian, talking to leaders uh, who were already running remote organizations before the pandemic because they were really the ones who had the expertise in how to do this. I can't say that I did. Rosetta Stone was was fully remote. Um, and there's a company called GitLab that was already fully remote. And so I was seeking out some of those leaders to talk to them about actually how they built successful, engaged organizations that were high performing um, and I actually took lessons from them. You know, things like really focusing on um, asynchronous communication, which becomes so important. The same as we talked about with entering new markets, ensuring that you're not copying and pasting your in-person world to your remote world. So the reason you used to have meetings before in your in-person world is not necessarily the same reason you should be having meetings and filling your calendar now, or you end up with 10 hours a day of meetings and everyone's exhausted. Ensuring that you're making specific time for team engagement and connection and relationship building that is separate from decision-making. And so there, there was quite a few lessons that I took that we really started to apply. So much of it though, right? When, what you lose from not being in person is the is that relationship building, the trust building, like that ease of trust building and engaging people, particularly onboarding people into the company. And so we had to get really intentional about ensuring folks had buddies, that they we had lots of space for relationship building. We were figuring out fun events so that people kept engaged as well. But we gave people options so we could be mindful of their, their time if they had families. As we've moved out of the remote world though, What's been really important for us and most exciting for me, because I love seeing my teams in person, is we've inserted what we call bursts, which are like what we call kind of bursts of time that we bring teams together in order to do strategic work, planning, work that can't be done remote, lots of relationship building time, that trust building time. We bring in coaches who can facilitate sessions to help build, you know, high-performing teams. Um, and we've encouraged our teams to get together, you know, two, three times a year in these bursts that can be through then through planning. And they're all having fun with it, right? We've got, and we've, we've kind of pre, um, we've, uh, kind of, uh, pre-sought out some ports around the world that people can use for it. So, you know, so we've got a, there's a Chateau in Normandy that the teams will use. They can get together in London. We've still got an office space in Berlin. And so you get a chance to bring teams together for two or three days. Are these bursts for like very big 
groups of folks or, or could it be like a very small team? How does that work? Smaller teams is more effective for these, right? Because that way you really get, you're working on things that are common problems and then you have that time to really build connections with each other. Um, we we'll still pull our organization together for larger events that are more like, you know, information out, like big summits and, and kind of kickoffs. Um, and that's separate to that. But the bursts are really meant to be a, kind of your closer team, maybe, you know, 10 to 25 people that can really operate and strategize well together. And do you find then that as a senior leader with lots of these smaller teams, you're pulled into these bursts quite frequently because there's always one going on somewhere? Yeah, uh, I can be, right? I've got my, you know, direct report, my senior leadership team, and, and we try to get together actually every couple of months just for a couple of quick days of strategizing, resetting, you know, kind of rethinking uh, our goals and how things are going. Um, but yeah, this is, a, we were talking about, you know, the ways that I think about scaling myself and my relationship with my organization uh, and ensuring that they feel they have connection to me. I will try and drop in for a day um, where they need me to. Looking at your your background before Shopify, um, you did all kinds of interesting things. It's by, It was by no means obvious looking at that, that you were going to end up as the MD of EMEA for this incredibly successful e-commerce company. Can you tell us a bit about that? T- tell us a bit about your, your journey to Shopify. Sure. Um, you know, I uh, coach a lot of our, our younger uh, employees here as well. We have we bring in a lot of folks that are, you know, fresh out of school. And it's so much fun for me watching them start to navigate and figure out what they want to do in their career. And so when I get asked the question, I often let them know that, you know, there, you're absolutely right. There was no obvious path that you can see with my career. But what I've, as I've reflected back, what I've realized is each step of my career was actually a moment for me to have learned the next thing about myself. So it was really a journey in self-awareness of either what I was good at uh, or maybe what I loved or actually what I didn't need, you know, what really fulfills me. Um, I started my career way back in like in, in FMCG in marketing of all things and have somehow ended up, you're absolutely right, in like commercial leadership in e-commerce. And I, I don't know how you draw the line from one to the other, but each one was realizing that, you know, at the first step, FMCG, to be honest with you, was was a little boring to me. Just didn't see the growth and the excitement of growth and innovation. And so I, I realized I was seeking out high growth. I realized I wanted to learn how others made decisions and set strategy. And so I flipped myself customer facing for a while because I really wanted to learn from others who were building the strategies for their organizations. And again, I realized I really like to build and I like to lead. And that's what led me over to tech, where you could build all the things and wear many hats and have seven roles in four years. As I think that's what it's been for me at Shopify at this point, um, and build and develop people, right? And so it was a it was kind of a progression at each step of the way of, of what I thought I was good at and, and really what fulfills me. What do you find, this is a bit of an unfair question, but um, what do you find the most exciting and the hardest parts of what you do at the moment? Honestly, the hardest part of what I do is the pace of growth. It really is. And I just finished saying how much I love growth and that's actually what I seek out. And I, I, but it's the problems of growth, right? Because growth in itself is a nice problem to have, but it's hard. 
right? It's not something that's just, that just naturally happens. You have to figure out how to operate and build and scale through growth. And you have to go through like the skates, the stages of maturity so much faster than feel like just natural to anyone. And that's in personal growth and figuring out what your role is and how you show up as a leader. But it's also in how you very quickly evolve the maturity of like your revenue models in an organization and how you show up in markets. And so it's incredibly uncomfortable. Um, so that's probably the hardest part of what I do is, is, is managing it's just honestly, it's existing through and figuring out the next step of growth, and uh, and trying to be the right leader for that. Yeah, I think I think what what I found was you sort of think at some point surely it's going to get easier because you know you're growing and you know you yeah. kind of earned the right somehow to have an easy life. Every year is harder than the last one was, <laughs> and it just keeps getting harder. I don't know why, but it, it does. It 100% does, right? Because you're faced every time you solve one problem, that's the joy of growth, right? The next set of problems comes your way. So you don't have a lot of time to rest. You got to, you know, kind of take a moment, breathe it in and, and get ready. And But that's the fun part, right? If you like learning. Yeah, it takes a certain masochism, doesn't it? <laughs> I really do think so. It is, it is a little bit of masochism. Um, but for me also, it's a hunger to learn. I yeah. just, I love being faced with a problem that I don't know how to solve. Yeah. Amazing. Shimona, it's, it's been such an inspiration talking to you and I appreciate you taking the time in what is an incredibly busy job that, that you must have. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Adrian. I love the conversation. 